Hello, and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the Ali S. Freed Professor of Government at Harvard University, as well as the Faculty Director of Social Sciences at the Harvard Radcliffe Institute. He's one of the world's leading experts on regulation and bureaucracy, with much of his work focusing on the application of historical, theoretical, and mathematical approaches to analyze the development of political institutions, public bureaucracies, and petitioning systems in North America. His latest book is Democracy by Petition, Popular Politics and Transformation, 1790 to 1870. It's my great honor to welcome to the show, Dr. Daniel Carpenter. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Firstly, I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background. Uh, sure. Um, I uh, grew up in a small town in northern Michigan. Um, uh, it's a little north of Traverse City, Michigan, called Elk Rapids. And um, uh, got interested in academia in college, uh, went to Georgetown. And at the time, I think I was really interested in political philosophy. Um, and then went to graduate school and got kind of interested in the links between, I'd say, um, political philosophy and actual American political practice, especially uh, American political history. Um, and it's that uh, that became the basis for my interest in the development of administrative agencies, uh, things like that. Uh, I still teach uh, courses in political philosophy. I teach a course called Res Publica at uh, Harvard, which is basically a history of representative government um, with an exposure to uh, different works in uh, what you might call small r Republican political theory. And, um, uh, you know, I've been interested in uh, a range of different uh, subjects over the years, although I've gotten uh, increasingly interested in, um, you know, 19th century political history, in part because I think uh, some of the most important uh foundations for modern life uh, were kind of cemented there. Right. And so firstly, I wanted to talk to you about the book uh, um, that you recently wrote, Democracy by Petition. And, and I specifically wanted to start off by asking about how these two concepts, um, democracy and petitioning, which are seemingly irreconcilable, come to exist. So democracy assumes that the, pe uh, the people to be sovereign and elected representatives of, uh, act as public servants to implement the will of said people. And if they fail to do so, the people then have the ability to elect different representatives who will carry out their will, while petitioning, on the other hand, is a process through which people can merely ask their officials to enact a certain change, which they may or may not choose to do. So how did this system of petitioning come to exist in a democratic republic and what role did it play in 19th century politics? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, so I think one important feature of um uh, it, or one important thing to keep in mind as we think about sort of the longer uh, history of, you know, uh, democracy and of democratic republics uh, is that petitioning was there long before, um, you know, petitioning, as far as we can tell, is as old as human societies. Um, there are petitions on, um, uh, you know, papyrus uh, uh, and, and stone tablets uh, from ancient empires um, uh, there's evidence of uh, Native Americans petitioning one another with wampum and other uh, mnemonic devices, uh, uh, you know, at least a millennia old, if not more so. 
Um, and, and so, you know, the, the idea of petitioning as a kind of diplomacy between societies where uh, different uh, complaints and requests are made is very old. Um, I think in the development of the kind of petitioning that we know now, and I mean directed petitioning, not petitioning where we seek to put a proposition or a candidate on a ballot. That's what I would call plebiscitary petitioning. And in some ways, that can be more uh, forceful in the in the simple sense that if you just cross a numerical threshold, then you know you get something on the ballot or a person's name on it. Um, but I think it was it it came in part as a, a way of communicating between ruler and ruled between sovereign and subject uh, in the uh, particularly it evolved a lot in the in medieval Europe in that way uh, with the rise of uh, monarchies uh, and of parliaments um, and um, and I think what happened in the early modern period late medieval early modern period in Europe is that those parliaments and those assemblies began to become more and more um, mature and people began to uh, to um, uh, petition them more and more. And it became something of an acknowledged right of politics that one would always be able to take one's petitions and complaints to uh, to uh, an assembly or, or a crown. And um, so at some level, again, even before the emergence of modern mass democracy, we had developed petitioning systems. I think what, what made um, the two go together at some level was that when um, the early republics, say, in the United States were built really at the state level and then the national level, um, all of those uh, early republics, say the republics built in the 1770s after the American Revolution, they presumed a world in which people could petition uh, their legislatures and their governors and even administrative officials um, and that's why actually the First Amendment, um, the First Amendment didn't start the right to petition. If anything, it was presumed. Um, it certainly enshrined it in constitutional amendment um, and in constitutional text. But it, it reflected an understanding that was already there. And note that the text of the First Amendment is not petition Congress for redress of grievances, but petition government for the redress of grievances, which means that just any governmental officials should be able to be petitioned. Um, and I think in the 1800s, before we had mass parties, before we had opinion polls, before we had a really developed uh, tort system in courts where people could sue one another uh, uh, on the basis of their uh, complaints and grievances, um, petitions were a really important way of kind of communicating problems and agenda items to those uh, in office. Um, and I, I don't want to romanticize the 1800s. Uh, you know, we have um, a world of much more uh, enshrined equal rights, um, enforced by courts, uh, universal voting rights, things like that. As I say at the end of the book, uh, only a fool would trade the right to vote for the right to petition. But I think somewhat less a fool would regard them as complete substitutes as opposed to complements. And so, um, uh, in part, if you think about the way that, say, a Congress right now starts, most of members' time is, um, you know, devoted to fundraising, 
uh, for campaigns. Uh, it's very expensive. They're constantly asking for dollars and or they're paying attention to what uh, you know their party has as a legislative program. Um, if it's the party, the president in office, then you know what the president is doing. Um, the first 100 days, whether it was better or worse, the first 100 days or first few months of a Congress uh, in the 1820s, 1830s, and 1840s would be devoted to reading petitions from the people and responding to them. And the response was often negative, um, but it was expected at that time that a response would be forthcoming. And then finally, I'll just conclude on this point, which is that I think um, you know what what made this particular moment, say between the 1820s and 1850s, so powerful is it was before you know systems of really sophisticated lobbying had developed, before, again, the tort system had developed to the maturity uh, we have it now, and I mean maturity just in the descriptive sense. And, um, and finally, um, uh, you know, before the mass parties had really matured, um, that uh, it was one of the few and perhaps in some cases most effective way, not only of communicating, communicating grievances, but of organizing around them and putting them on the agenda. And so part of what I argue in the book is whether it was tenant farmers in, you know, in 19th century New York, uh, whether it was people uh, trying to attack monopolies, uh, whether it was Native Americans trying to uh, reverse uh, fraudulent treaties, uh, women uh, advocating for the right to vote and African Americans and, and their allies um, pushing against slavery and civil rights abuses, um, uh, what often happened was that uh, even where the petition in the short run did not gain the policy concessions that the petitioners wanted, they often shaped the agenda. They put things on the agenda, um, and that would shape things later on. And in the process of petitioning, they often built organizations that would survive that very petitioning campaign. And so it was democratization. Um, in the sense of building the kinds of organizations that Alexis de Tocqueville uh, uh, thought about and admired in the United States. And it was, it was democratization in the sense that the agenda uh, of, of government was often opened up beyond that of what we might think of as elites or special interests. Not perfectly. It was a profoundly unequal, brutal world. Um, but it, it served in part that function and advanced a, a number of of core um, processes of democratization in the United States and Canada. So I, I also wanted to ask you um, then, what, what was the efficiency or the, the effectiveness of, of these sorts of petitions? So if, if Congress was receiving thousands of petitions from across the United States, many from um, marginalized groups um, that weren't even able to vote. Um, and so they, the, the representatives had no, no real um, incentive to act on those petitions um, because it wouldn't really increase their political support. What, what was the, the effectiveness of these, these petitions? Um, how, how often did they, it actually um, move, um, cause, cause a move to some sort of real change. Yeah. I, I, so for the first, let me, let me just say two things. First up first, I, you know, I don't think we have any sort of total global estimate. Um, my colleagues and I have put together the first data set of all petitions introduced to the U S Congress in American history up until about 1950. And with that, we'll be able to start to, um, get some other data and maybe get a handle on the question you're asking at a kind of a population level, Although even there, so much of the action was in state legislatures. 
Um, I, I wouldn't presume, though, you know, I, I, not not all societies thought as we do that it's only narrow kind of re-election self-interest that motivated these folks. Um, uh, for one, you know, you could you could appeal to people's justice and humanity, and occasionally that did um, move uh, move minds, move souls. Uh, the Seneca. A nation of Indians in New York did that very well. They had zero voting power, but they basically successfully made a case that um, a treaty in 1838 was fraudulent and needed to be overridden, and Congress did so, despite the fact that the, the Seneca had um, a negligible voting power, if any, uh, in New York politics at the time. Um, so, and that that was a common common phenomenon. It was also the case, if we want to think about incentives, um, that uh, that you know, if, if people felt that their uh, that that petitioning was of no use and that they would not be heard, then the possibility of revolt, rebellion, um, other forms of disorder uh, were um, were always there, um, and probably even more so than they are today. Um, which might be one reason why uh, petitioning um, maybe had more of an effect say, two centuries ago than it does now, uh, at least the kind of directed petitioning that I'm talking about. And that leads um, into my next question. So although petitioning was incredibly common throughout the 19th century, um, it seems to have slowly faded away as a, a form of political participation. So what do you think is the reason for this? Um, I think in part it's because uh, parties in particular, as well as other forms of organized advocacy, have become much more efficient. And by efficient, I, I want to be clear that I, I don't mean that in the normative sense. I, I, I think we're some ways away from being able to say, I mean, we need a lot more data um, and maybe even theory to know that. But I mean efficient in the sense that parties as preference aggregators and as information aggregators with their incentives are, are very powerful forces. Um, they've been so for you know roughly 200 years at the mass level uh, in the United States. Um, and as the parties began to be more centralized after the Civil War, um, they began to displace a lot of uh, the petitioning activity. Petitioning activity would often um, you know, migrate to those kinds of issues where the parties did not heavily differentiate. Um, so less and less on things like tariffs, more and more on things like slavery uh, before the Civil War, of course, uh, civil rights, um, occasionally things like uh, women's voting rights, uh, minority rights, and, and things like that. Um, I, although I want to emphasize, too, that once you get a, um, you know, other tools that that politicians have for figuring out what the sentiments of their constituents is, such as a poll or a survey, um, or there are lobbying groups that um, uh, you know can themselves run surveys, um, and or uh, there's also just the the avenue that becomes much easier for suing people, um, the development of the U.S. bar, uh, things like that. Um, those have also been sort of complementary mechanisms by which petitioning has declined. Um, and I will say, you know, that petitioning is is alive and in many respects, in some cases, alive and well. And the other thing that where you see petitioning uh, most commonly today, except for online, is the very kinds of petitions that you see in California, or at least maybe pioneered in some respects in some of these uh, in, the, in the progressive era. Uh, in California, which are petitions to place candidates or propositions on a ballot. 
Right. And so next, I wanted to talk to you a bit about the U.S. Postal Service, um, the privatization of which has become an increasingly political issue. So many on the right argue that efficiency could be improved um, should the Postal Service become privatized and that the multi-billion dollar subsidies that allow it to continue operating are an unnecessary burden on taxpayers. So you yourself studied at UChicago, which has long been the home of this type of economic thinking. So I wanted to ask you if you think there's any merit to the idea of privatizing the Postal Service, and if not, if there are any other major reforms that could be undertaken that would allow it to operate profitably. Yeah. Um, uh, my, my only worry about privatization is um, that it um, would probably lead, if unless you had uh, you know, a private monopoly with what you might call a universal service standard, such as was applied to um, uh, you know, uh, the bells, uh, uh, some of the large, uh, uh, you know, telephone and or electric infrastructure monopolies in the 70s and 80s, um, that you'd see a pretty massive retrenchment from um, from rural America. And you could argue that's a good thing, that maybe in some respects that uh, if you wanted to take a particularly dour view, these are places that uh, there's not a lot of uh, economic innovation, uh, potentially. That would be one argument. I don't necessarily believe that, but that would be one argument you could make. Um, uh, or that we shouldn't you know, subsidize these communities any more than we say subsidize farms. Um, I can see that. I will say politically, I think actually privatization is less likely now than it was even 10, 20 years ago in part because the Republican Party is predominantly, increasingly a party of rural America and especially rural white America. And these are some of the same constituencies that are, you could argue, overserved, but nonetheless significantly served by postal services. Um, so, you know, what are the different options out there? I mean, there are different uh, possibilities for talking about um, opening up some services to competition, um, that's long been the case, although not forever with respect to parcels. So with, you know, like UPS, uh, um, you know, FedEx, uh, other forms of delivery. Obviously, there are forms of implicit competition with respect to, uh, uh, you know, letter mail, things like that. A huge part of what goes on now in the Postal Service uh, uh, is uh, the it's become increasingly reliant upon the delivery of advertisements, um, uh, you know, second-class mail matter, uh, magazines, uh, brochures, things like that. And increasingly, as we're starting to see, um, it has become, uh, in this world of e-commerce, I don't think anybody quite expected this 20, 25 years ago, but when one buys things on eBay uh, and or Amazon, increasingly, it's the postal service that that is delivering uh, those things. Um, so, I think we would have to have, um, so I, let me just summarize by saying, um, I actually think, you know, if you were to tell me, okay, well, uh, say the Republicans are, are likely to win uh, back the House of Representatives and the Senate in the 2022 midterms and 2024 general elections, I would argue, um, at least I'd be willing to entertain the hypothesis that that fact, if we thought it was going to happen, would actually make postal privatization less likely. Um, and I think I probably, as a prediction, believe that. Um, but whatever happens, I think that the larger normative issue raised by that political fact is we need to think a lot about the distributive uh, um, 
uh, implications of that, um, uh, of, of any move to change massively the postal service uh, in terms of, you know, eliminating all forms of subsidy and along those lines. All right. Um, well, next, I wanted to discuss the issue of bureaucratic waste and inefficiency a bit more broadly. So it's no surprise that the federal bureaucracy has grown rapidly in terms of scope and budget. Um, however, it, it because it operates with no profit motive or, or any fiduciary responsibility to shareholders, it often comes un, under scrutiny for being wasteful and inefficient. So just one example of this are the hundreds of different welfare programs that collectively cost over a trillion dollars, including Medicaid, which spend tens of thousands of dollars per person in poverty annually and yet have, re have failed to reduce the poverty rate whatsoever in the past six years. So number one, I wanted to get your take on what's behind the rapid expansion of the federal bureaucracy over the past century. And number two, I wanted to ask if there's anything that can be done to address the allegedly inefficient state of most bureaucratic agencies. Um, yeah, I guess I would um, contest your uh, framing a bit. Um, uh, most of the growth in um, I, you know, there, there definitely has been a growth in federal spending. Um, the size of the federal civil service, um, especially once you net out the uh, the response to uh, September 11th, um, uh, federal civil service is uh, subtracting September 11th about what it was in the Kennedy administration. I think. I mean, we, you can double check those numbers, but I don't think I'm way off. Um, and so, when we think about um, when we think about the uh, you know incentive structure, it's it's worth pointing out that a whole bunch of what these agencies do, or at least a whole bunch of the money that's spent, involves very little bureaucratic discretion. Um, uh, it's you know formula based, as with Social Security. Uh, it's it's reimbursement and or direct provision based, and as in the case of Medicare. Um, and if you want to talk about, I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, if we're thinking about, uh, you know, uh, so-called welfare programs, those are the two that make up the, the largest share uh, by far of the federal uh, budget. Um, I think there's actually a plausible record for uh, anti-poverty on the part of, you know, things like Medicare and Medicare expansion. I'll just point to, um, you know, a lot of the literature that's come out that's done some pretty tightly quasi-experimentally controlled comparisons with respect to Medicaid expansion after the Affordable Care Act that, that I think gives us some better evidence. Not perfect, uh, certainly not without waste, but has had, um, you know, different effects on, uh, on health that are, I think, observable and, and reasonably controlled. Okay. Um, and so finally, I wanted to ask you about the FDA, um, specifically the FDA cleared versus FDA approved issue, which has been on the news a lot, um, which many claim has served as a loophole for companies to put faulty um, devices on the market. Essentially, if a medical device is substantially similar to another device uh, already approved, it wouldn't be subjected to a rigorous testing process um, in order to increase um, the rate of innovation. So I wanted to ask you if the backlash against this rule is justified and if it should be closed entirely or if there's some other way to stop um, potentially dangerous devices from going on the market without significantly stifling innovation? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, this substantial equivalence, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, framework has been, um, was first developed in drugs when people began to think about uh, the, the question of bioequivalence. It was an important development because it allowed for um, uh, you know, the market framework for generic drugs to emerge. Um, and I've written on that. 
Um, I do think there's a risk in the case of devices, um, uh, not so much that, um, you know, small, potentially functionally equivalent devices can't emerge and things like that. There clearly has been a lot of innovation in the device market, uh, things like that. I think one of the fears that people have is that um, compared to drugs, uh, especially, you know, um, uh, large and small molecules that we regulate as as drugs or biologics, um, the things that come to market come with a lot less testing and not just merely of safety, but also efficacy. And so part of the way I tend to see the FDA is it's not just about safety. It's also uh, a, a regime that creates incentives for um, rigorous experimentation, probably more so than the market itself, certainly more so than the market itself, if unregulated, would have. Um, it's possible that we have too much, uh, that the experiments are too costly, things like that. But we do need some level in part to provide some a core level of uh, market confidence and also for basic things of coordination, like, you know, informative labeling, setting a certain ex- set of expectations for physicians, surgeons, patients, insurers, payers, providers, things like that. Um, so I don't have a hard take on uh, whether, uh, you know, the loophole and the case, what you might, might call a loophole in the case of devices should be closed. Um, but I think uh, there's a lot of people who are concerned about that. Um, if it were to operate a bit more like the, I think there's an argument for for saying it, it might operate a bit more like the world of generic drugs, where in fact there still are some um, uh, healthy, uh, some would say not healthy enough, but uh, plausibly healthier incentives uh, for uh, experimentation uh, with generic drugs as they come on the market. All right. Um, well, those are all the questions I have for you today. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Carpenter. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Adi. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.